I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. My name is Rachel Allen, and I want to welcome you all to the launch of Stephanie Sakir's incendiary debut collection with Grant of Poetry, Amnion, which is here in all its purple and lucid blue glory. But already on this first sentence, my first definition of this book as a collection, I am stumbling. For to say collection for this living and breathing entity belies the undefinable nature of this work, of the world that Stephanie has created. Amnion was published three weeks ago, and it's already a Poetry Book Society recommendation, been named a New Statesman Book of the Year, and The Guardian have called it a powerful hybrid song charged with ferocity and fragility, all in its first three weeks of life. Amnion is a tapestry of a book. The concept of family, those that are chosen for us, those that we are given, aren't so much told in this book as experienced and lived. Matrilineal lines, circumstantial happenings, coincidental meetings, war, lovers, births, marriages, educations, class tensions, politics, the concepts and philosophical, mystical and sociological implications of all of these are simultaneously excavated while being narrativized. Through this incredibly unique sense of what it means to excavate, thematically, we dig down into a story or the idea of a story of telling a life. All around us, sentences fragment, form ruptures, there are explosions of connotation and movement and words are meandered through or drilled down to their shiniest, hardest etymological nub. Amnion is like hundreds of maps layered on top of each other, each with a different agenda. Amnion is like being in a church and hearing hundreds of muttering voices reverberating from walls. You can hear the outside world from within. Amnion imbues in itself the oldest form of storytelling, this long poem, this aural communication with the necessary reverberations of now. Fragmentary, harnessing dispersal, it is constellatory and unlike anything I've ever read. I'm going to introduce Stephanie now to speak and read her work for us, alongside the incredible poet Will Harris, whose poems I could similarly wax lyrical on and talk about all day. Needless to say, between these extraordinary poets, there's a kinship within their deep focus on innovating an idea of what it means to tell a story through poetry. Will Harris's exceptional debut, Rendang, was also published under the Ground to Poetry umbrella, but it's a real honour for me to give the space over to two of my favourite poets, who I have the honour of working with every day. So, without much more muttering from me, I'm going to hand over to Stephanie and Will to read poems and talk with us. Thanks so much, Rachel. Um, I think I'm going to go first and I'm just going to do a short reading and then I'm going to hand it over to Stephanie and then we're going to talk and then there'll be more poetry from Stephanie and then more conversation. I'm going to read a, a bit of one long poem from Rendon, which is a sequence called The White Jumper partly because Stephanie suggested I read from it, but it's a really difficult one to read from. I never know quite how to how to do it 
partly because it does jump around and it's like it, it, it was it came out of this dream journal I kept for about two three months after I'd had a particularly vivid dream so it's, it's actually not, it's only a dream journal in the conventional sense in that I had one dream which was about seeing this white jumper and not being able to reach it and then I kept a journal to kind of process that dream through my day-to-day -day life you know how um, Freud talks about dreams as being a way of processing the day's residue and so I guess writing this poem was trying to kind of sift through the day's residue again for traces of the dream, kind of working backwards. And when I read from it, I basically just choose random parts and it's a bit different every time. So it can be kind of recombined. Uh, and yeah, in the period when I was writing it, my grandma died. Quite a lot of stuff about that. And then just a lot of other random bits as well. The White Jumper. Running and jumping from one grassy platform to another, I stop. On the next patch of grass, branches so arranged as to focus a beam of light on the grass, white and gleaming against the green. The white jumper, the white jumper, white. We were at a pizza restaurant for Hugo's birthday. Dan said he was coming back from work, a late shift at the hospital. Then a car came towards him at the crossing. He stood his ground. And the next thing he knows, he's shouting and the asshole's driving off. In the ambulance, they're telling him not to look down. Mate, look here, look here, mate. Laid up for six months. It went to the high court. It was two years before he got compensation. I looked across at Hugo. I looked out of the window. Next week, Dan flies to Australia. Four months, no time to waste. He's gonna finish his novel. It's about a time traveling wood elf. You know how relativity works? Base folds over on itself. The US military had this plan to nuke the moon. It all happened during the Cold War. They didn't plan on it being overcast. I looked across at Hugo. I looked out of the window. We were sitting upstairs, and in the whitest end of day light, the walls white too. It felt not just like we were above ground, but that despite being in Covent Garden, we were on a ridge above a forest, looking down our feet in thicket, dark our heads in thickest stars. I hadn't seen Hugo in years. At primary school, we would stay up late and play Sonic the Hedgehog, passing the controller back and forth when one of us died. Run, jump, jump, run, jump, run. One night, his grandma screamed at us in Urdu. She wore a plain white nightie. We stopped laughing, or we tried laughing quietly. By the time we had completed a level, we could run through each jump without looking. On the way home, I ran past a pret, a spaghetti house, a five guys, a bella Italia, the path lit by the lights of passing cars, the pith of discarded pizza, pret, spaghetti house, five guys, bella Italia, crossing the road, a car honked, its owner shouting through his closed window, look where you're going, cunt. I was looking for the white jumper. Are some dreams more trivial than others? Last night, I dreamt that Morrissey was performing and I stood behind him, waving my arms in sync. Fuck this, he said, and stormed off stage. The Nazis admired Caspar David Friedrich for his blood and soil vision. In several paintings, two friends contemplate the moon, which appears to be exploding. One shows the blast in its white heat. Another has the sky a darker blue, the moon dark too. The moon is down. I have not heard the clock. A friend rests his hand against another's shoulder to console him. I know that blood stands for race and soil for nation. But blood and soil makes me think of bloodied soil. Do some people imagine themselves in the same relation to their place of birth as a scab to a wound? I asked my grandma questions, my mum translating. I asked if she was scared. What? Coup? No, she was brave. In Sumatra once, having paid our respects at the tomb of her husband, we drove into the jungle. Everywhere was green. We stopped by a store and the driver left us to buy water. 
Men walked out from behind a pickup truck. She gripped the overhead handle. The machetes gleamed. She gripped the overhead handle. Everywhere was green. I could just go on. <laughs> but uh, that seems a good point to um, introduce Stephanie. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for that, Will. I um, I actually was in Scotland last week and I read that sort of last section of the White Jumper as a sort of live epigraph because that line about our relation to our place of origin as a scab to a wound is just beautiful and, and very much in line with my thinking. So I'm going to read a passage from quite early on in the book. Some contextual information that you might need is that the massacre of Manila, or the Manila massacre, happened in February 1945. That was when the Americans entered Manila and were forcing the Japanese army into a retreat. And it was some incredibly vicious fighting because it was right through the center of Manila. And so the Japanese army put out an order that all Filipino civilians had effectively become guerrillas and they were to be shot on sight. And my great grandmother, she lost several of her male relatives in a reprisal whereby a Japanese soldier had been killed by a sniper and in reprisal the Japanese threw a two-mile radius around where he had been killed and then went into every house and took two men or took all the men they could find and then shot them and then took the remains away so that those people's families could never claim their remains and kind of perform last rites. And then a Carmelite nun is a nun who takes vows to never leave the convent. So other people do their shopping for them. <laughs> and then also a dum-dum bullet is a bullet designed to explode on impact. So it's designed to make a much bigger wound than just a normal bullet wound. Heavenly graces. If we are to go back again, there were three sisters, great, great aunts by the names of Faye, Esperanza, and carried dad. In the under-discussed massacre of Manila, February 1945, Faye was widowed in the two-for-one street-by-street Japanese retreat. At the creak of bootstep on the stair, Jibasinet snatched her sleeping baby and hid in a cupboard. Sure enough, in comes a soldier, and from the cupboard crack Faye can see Jibasinet bayonets immediately. Esperanza became a vegan and a nun. Now she mothers superior and Carmelite near Loag. Shall I entertain you with the fetishism of the foreign name? My father, when a little boy, was taken to the visiting room, which is latticed split, and asked, are you a bird? Because you are in a cage. Caridad was five years wed and childless, an enigma to all invested. She sustained dum-dum fire in the same said Japanese retreat, caught in crossfire on the walk home from consoling the women of her family. Brother, father, men all rounded up, a soldier, sniper slain, and a radius drawn where he fell from which to take all the men to be found. Caridad's husband gesturing from a first floor window for her to stop, but she misread him and he jumped as she fell in the street a bullet expanding in her back. Luckily, her neighbor was an obstetrician and stitched her up face down between the stirrups, having only whiskey to clean what would become a fist-fit hollow in her back. He had time to see her uterus was retrograde, so he rectified, and Lola was born in March of 1946. That's kind of all I want to say for now, but I think that both Will's poem and what I've just read from Amnion provide, well, at least I like to think they do, fruitful ways of thinking about origins. And I think when I think about family history and trying to answer the question where I come from, I don't know where to place the first picket. And therefore, you know, obviously I operate at several removes from my great grandmother, but she basically might never have known that she had what the source of her fertility issues were had she not been severely wounded in um, the Manila massacre. And just by chance, she ended up being able to, to have five children. Yeah, that's a really amazing place to begin. Like, like a lot of the book, it seems to be kind of pitched somewhere between family history and kind of allegory. 
and I think it's something it's something about the the style of the, the book. It, it's kind of easy to describe it as a memoir in some sense, but it doesn't have the the linearity of a memoir, which and I think that that like central fact completely disrupts it. I, I wanted to bring in actually a question that you ask later on. It's the bit where you're at school and you become really obsessed with the Sutton Hoo excavation, which kind of made me think of that because this idea of an open burial, this like wound in the ground, and all of this like treasure hoarded there. And you say, how does the ground know to remember? And actually, when I read that, I made it made me think of that line that Denise Riley always quotes um, from Lucretius: "We fall in the direction of the wound." I was thinking, what? Yeah, that that line has just really stayed with me. How does the ground know to re know to remember? And I kind of wondered what it meant to you. Yeah, well, so basically, when when I was at university, actually, we studied the Sutton Hoo excavation, which was part of studying Anglo-Saxon, which in certain academic traditions is still rather insistently referred to as Old English, which I thought in itself was very interesting because it's you know Anglo-Saxon bears very little relation to modern English, and yet there's this kind of nationalistic insistence on placing the first picket line there. And or pl placing the first picket there and saying this is the beginning of our our national literature and and placing that with you know texts like Beowulf these very heroic texts and what I found fascinating about the Sutton Hoo excavation was that you know yes they dug into this barrow in the land but they didn't find they found a boat but also not a boat <laughs> because the wood had all rotted away and so they found the mineral traces of wood. So the, basically the footprint of a boat. And I remember just questioning my lecturer just in circles and she had to say again and again, no, but it was just the mineral deposits that indicated that there had once been a boat made out of wood there. And I said, but how does it, you know, she said something about like the carbon memory of the, of the soil. And I, I said, like, I was just so sort of entranced and confused and didn't really understand. And I said, but I don't understand. How does the ground, how, how does the ground know to have a memory? And was just completely fascinated with that idea. And then also that Sutton Hoo was discovered, uncovered in 1938, and it was such a major discovery for kind of British self-perceptions on the eve of this conflict, which we have mythologized very much to our detriment, I would say. But you know, this you basically have this massive archaeological find that proves that we had culture, you know, we don't have to kind of look to like or we had culture, what does that mean exactly? We don't have to look to the Greeks and the Romans. And, and so there was a lot of pride in that find, something which I think that the film The Dig actually captures quite beautifully. I really enjoyed that film, all those great shots of like landscape with the kind of barrows and the kind of carbon memory of the land being visible. And then with like tiny human walking through the shot or whatever, all of that stuff is, yeah, very, very thrilling to me. <laughs> I feel like, the, the book as a whole is also constructed around this skepticism towards beginnings, you know, about like where to begin, let me begin again. But at the same time, there's this like contrapuntal movement, which is that it is, you are always also trying to find a starting point or like a firm place to kind of sit and rest. Yeah, absolutely. I think a big part of the book is sparring with lineage and linearity because I think part of what the book celebrates is that sort of constellational kinship and chosen family and kind of more lateral networks between people which are unsanctioned in our societies because they're not conducive to the kind of consolidation of material wealth through marriage and inheritance. And, you know, we, ha we all of us have so many relationships in our lives of, you know, beautiful friendship that is one of the most sustaining types of love and one of the most radical types of love. And I wanted to honor that. And also to go back to the excavation metaphor, you know, that Rachel used in her intro, I think I, and it, you'd have to do the same thing with, you know, a boat that was in, a, in the ground that was actually just the memory of a boat. You can't dig down in a violent way. You can't bring your shovel to the excavation site. You know, you have to bring your fine hair brush and then like sit in the dust for a long time, working away and slowly, gently uncovering the thing. And so that was very important to me as well to try and bring a gentleness to uncovering multiple beginnings. And I would say also that was like many people, many writers I admire very much, very guided by 
John Berger's sentence in his novel G that never again shall a single story be told as if it's the only one. And so I wanted to gather up all the stories and put them in one place and give them not necessarily a linear arrangement, but just give them a place that I gave felt or that I tried <laughs> or in which I tried to give them their due. I'm kind of curious, can I ask, how did you, how did you write the book, the, the process? Did you start with something more linear and then kind of break it up or did it come in those bursts, which is the experience of reading it, I think, which is being, yeah, these cinematic moments. Thank you. You're actually not the first person to um, word cinematic, which I find incredibly flattering. No, I think it did come in. It did come in bursts. I didn't write it. It, it took me nine years during which I wasn't necessarily taking myself seriously as a writer. And, you know, I started when I was very young, so I had huge gaps in my frame of reference and I didn't feel that the kind of text I was writing was being modeled for me elsewhere. And then as a, as a virtue of getting older and being better read, I found that there were other people doing amazing things. So Eduardo Galliano is someone I look to immensely. I think he's tragically underread in the UK and he kind of specializes in the long collections of very short prose poems, many of which concentrate on a tiny anecdote of kind of solidarity or resistance to oppressive regime or an oppressive structure in some way. And I loved that celebration of resistance and resilience and the space that his books hold for the many different ways to be brave. That was very important to me. So a lot of the anecdotes that appeal to me demonstrate similar things and try to honor the fact that people can take a whole variety of risks or only risk so much in certain situations, but we shouldn't deny their their contributions to fighting for a just cause. So for instance, my great grandmother um, in the Philippines, you know, under the Marcos regime, she was a wealthy socialite and she um wealthy woman in Manila and she used to hold open house um in her house which is you know where you have like 60 people over for Sunday lunch she would provide a safe space for people to talk about the regime effectively where you know she would say I'm not gonna rat you out and she would get get them talking and so that was a small thing she did to enable and a contribution she made I believe to the 1986 revolution which was an amazing and peaceful one and I mean, very sadly, she died two months before she could actually see it come to pass. But um, I think that's just a very good illustration of the fact that we shouldn't ignore. We tend to glorify quite a macho and sort of singlist, for want of a better word. But the, the uh, you know, sort of the idea of the individual male hero, you know, cutting telegraph wires in the French resistance or whatever. And in fact, that was a risk that many people couldn't take, but they were able to take others. And I want to celebrate that variety. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really nice way of, of framing it kind of around moments of resistance. I think it's too obvious to describe it as fragmented because the effect isn't really fragmentary. It is of a kind of collecting together of, yeah, kind of constellatory like Rachel said. I wonder, is now a good time to hear more, more poem? Yeah, I think so. So I'm going to read from the second section of the book. I don't think there's any context you need for this, but it is about my going to a boarding school in Kent, um, having never lived in England and not really having spent much time in England. And I think I had been thinking of myself as British in my life up until that point and sort of then being confronted with a certain iteration of the English project and feeling quite uncomfortable about it. Of Canterbury, I recall, scuff, stone smell, dew seep, smell at crotch of tights, a laser. To the school, I am delivered a three-hour drive north through a veiled land replete with cathedrals. There is Amiens with its traces of paint still and shafts of the windows. Beauvais unfinished, three times its spire fell through. Now it is braced with wooden beams on crutches. It boasts the highest clerestory in Europe. It smells of mouldering stone. 
Reims, where are buried the kings, Coulon, which boasts the foreskin of the saviour, under the channel to burst forth near a hill where runs a horse white in chalk. I remember that boat, smallest to answer the call. Named Tamzine, it lies on the floor of the Museum for Imperial War. The littlest of the little ships of Dunkirk, clinker built from Canadian spruce. The school is of flint and brick, it too has a cathedral. At the boarding house, which is new, but built out of the ruins of the old infirmary ten centuries old, another mother is wearing a poncho. She asks where we're from, how we got here. At my mother's reply, the Eurotunnel, she says, oh well, you will have come in under our land then. I am unpacked and stowed away. Later that night, the others start to arrive. There are five blondes in a total of 12. There is lacrosse gear and lurid pink mouth guards. Their jeans are different from mine, tighter. I have never seen so many sets of big breasts. Their hair is mid-length, it swishes. Their clothes are all somehow the same. Are you rich? The others wait politely for my reply. The land seems so old, but deluded also. The white horse that leaps on the green hill singing in chalk is a copy. The stone of the cathedral came from Caen, where as a child in an oversized fleece, I stood in a very large crater near the Museum of Peace. My father was at D-Day and was shot in the hip. He lay on the beach in the surf for three days. My godfather has my baby sister strapped to his chest. This cool, cold plain of Europe's beige edge is on par with Mont Saint-Michel, its great flat-footed expanse where my brother and I dig its ridges for clams before the tide comes running. This is deep bone-knowing country. Albion, I hold it in my mouth with pleasure like a corpulent pearl. It contains all the stories England tells itself, a plosive, bounded space girded by neat cliffs and land's end. How they thought of their virgin queen, the whole universe under her skirts. My femalehood was boarded over my eyes like a set piece. To determine its deviance became the all-consuming aim. Cover your shoulders. Shoulders remind boys of boobs. My body became as incendiary as a vernacular. It was the thing that lay in the dark woods at the trailing ends of sentences, at the short edge of night and late at skirt. The, blondes, the blonde others aspired to be described with mean, hard-nosed little words, thin, pretty, nice. I wanted big femur words like wise and kind. The boys were always touching each other. When the parents came, they were loud, they came two by two in pairs of Sunday lunching racists. The fathers wore trousers the colour of rare meat. A hunk of roast beef seeping, banking on things in the city, with flats useful for unfaithing. Their wives stayed at home in the counties. Maybe they were lonely and screamed themselves hoarse in the cut stone quiet of their houses. These marriages seemed structures of mutual scorn. Watching them made me flush hot with fear that this was coming for me and sent me knock-kneed to hide. Their days of barbered torpor, the cream-colored afternoons. I wanted big-beamed love. I wanted to be one of the women who swear and have gray in their hair. I wanted, though this too was warped, to be the emotional center without which nothing can hold. In our lesson, the timelined people have made landfall in America. The people they find there are untimelined. According to the landfalls, they have no history. This is something that even the ancients did not know. This is something entirely new. Everything is uncertain. The world is of unknown proportions. Luther is nailing a piece of paper to a door. He is standing saying, I stand before you now and can do no other. Everything is chaos. Nothing is known. The universe is a black womb rioting with stars. There are so many bits in that I love, but one of them, which is from me hearing you read it out loud, is the um, the quotation marks around blazer. I just think that's 
really very funny. <laughs> Thank you. I I mean I just think it's kind of what what a list can do to like evoke a place, but also what punctuation can do in that. Had you, was it because the word blazer was new to you, or because it, of the kind of like class connotation? For a number of reasons, I think. I mean, I think it's funny that like a blazer as an item of clothing is just like such a class marker. But then also when you talk about like so and so was blazing, or like let's get blazed if that's something people say. <laughs> I just thought that that disparity was quite funny and I think also just capturing the some of the kind of public school idiom is something I was trying to do um, and getting like getting the ear for the kind of like things that are not so much accents but like uh, linguistic tics that are particular to that kind of milieu and that um, idiom as well. So for instance like the public school nomenclature system of like taking a syllable from someone's last name and then adding ers on the end of it <laughs> so that you get, I don't know, waggers being your nickname at school for four years. I mean, this doesn't, this hasn't happened to anyone uh, I was at school with, but that's quite a standard, as in not that particular name, but that is quite a standard procedure and, and the sort of like ragging around of um, words that I find quite bizarre and also quite entertaining. Yeah, I really, I, I feel like there are lots of moments in the book where you kind of slightly like zoom out and there's the, and the language itself, you know, kind of draw, you draw attention to the language itself and the kind of like flimsiness of it almost. Like when you talk about arriving in England, land of like angels, angles, angles. And that you do, you have like another moment like that where you talk, where you say ionic, ironic, iconic, I don't know, all these things which feel like almost like quite like silly moments where you're just like playing with words. And in fact, the biggest one happens there when you say, when you bring in Albion. And I was just thinking of like the link between Albion and Amnion. Do you feel like, was that in your mind? Is there a link between Albion and Amnion? Yeah, that, absolutely. That, all of the imagery there is, feels like seeping with like irony. And... I'm very interested in how words or phrases can carry echoes of other words or phrases. So that section begins of Canterbury, I recall. And I quite deliberately wrote that to echo St. Augustine's to Carthage, then I came about his journey towards like spiritual self-discovery and really, you know, turning his life around. Similarly, you know, Canterbury also has a very fam famous St. Augustine affiliated with it. I mean, the two of them, like St. Augustine of Carthage fame and of um, Canterbury fame are like the big Augustines, I think we can agree. But with the link between Albion and Amnion, I didn't want to call the book Albion because I thought that would be too obvious because in many ways I do think it is a book about my relationship to England starting from when I was 14 and coming up to you know pretty much the present. Amnion was a word that I saw in a biology textbook when I was 15 and I thought wow that's that's the title for the thing that I'm tinkering with in a notebook and I'm not taking very seriously yet as a project, but that I'm kind of slowly starting to add to. And so it's had this title from really, really early on. And I just really loved the bounded sound of Amnion. But also, I think that now the, so an Amnion is, the Amnion is the innermost membrane of the amniotic sac that, you know, like we've all been in one. And I thought that was a very interesting way of thinking about how the structures which you know enclose us they keep us safe for a while and they permit us to grow and develop but we do actually have to leave them and that's a part of becoming truly alive and growing up and we should all be seeking to grow up and become more aware and you know walk out of leave the structures which enclose us all the time i don't think that process should ever ever end and so you kind of look around and you think about the many structures um, or the many things that structure our lives you know be that the nuclear family or traditional marriage or nations is a big one for me and I don't think that we should burn them to the ground but I do think we should poke them in lots of different places and then take a walk outside them and then return to them on our own terms yeah, that um, I was just going to say as well that flim, that sort of underlining the flimsiness of words and wordplay and the double meanings that exist in words is what starts the book after its epigraph. 
Bandrel, Church, Builders in Part and Arch, Bandrel, Biology, that which has not arisen from fear. And even from those first two lines, you get an idea of your project, your linguistic project, which is to push the potentialities of language and test the potentialities of language for what one word may hold within it historically, uh, emotionally, um, sociologically, but also it introduces us to various themes within the book. There's this sort of very slim, minor kind of underlying thread of sort of mental health and depression that comes from a sort of a bodily place. It feels almost somatic. And this idea of kind of how our bodies can lead our feelings and how interlinked our sort of physical makeup is with our mental, which bleeds into the buildings that we live in too, and the buildings that house us and the institutions that we are forced to be in affect our mental state and our way of being. Yeah, I think that's integral to my experience of girlhood as well, because I say in the book, you know, what is a woman? An irrevocable <laughs> invitation for interpretation. And I think that that's what preoccupies me about the way we talk about women. And I mean that in the broadest possible sense. And the way we talk about gender is that just everyone wants to have a say. And that that to me is the defining aspect of being a girl and then being a woman is that people just have views of you and um, a lot of them aren't very nice. And so you're constantly like kicking against things to try and find out who you are and trying to do so in a way that is self-directed and joyful. And ultimately, I think it's the joy that is a greater marker of, of who we are. If you don't have violent things happen to you, the spectre of violence is always kind of shoved in your face or deliberately meant to hover over your shoulder to try and control your behavior. So I found that duality also very interesting and the, the kind of the monstrous and spectral aspects that this violence takes on, it can come from any number of places, i.e., you know, some kind of desire for institutional control or from people who really love you and who want to make sure that you're going to be safe. And that's, you know, such a horrible tension to navigate, but it, it accrues um, and how you how you cast it off and or live with it is also, I think, a big part of my project. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Something else I also wanted to maybe pick up on or have you talk about a little bit, just because I've been so interested in this working with you as an editor, is the formal construction of the book, which feels like geological in the layered, in its layeredness, in its sort of mesh-like nature, because the book is in sections and within those sections there are kind of smaller parts 
and within those smaller parts there are parenthetical asides which almost operate like a kind of choral or kind of off-camera commentary but also play with that idea and then within that of course we have this etymological play that's happening on a sentence level and I'm just really interested in how you came and it may be just quite an organic process but the sort of necessity of interweaving so many different kinds of ways of gesturing towards a story or signposting towards an aspect of a narrative that for me have sort of congealed and commingled to make this perfectly raw thing but each of the formal aspects of it are so startling and so original and they work so well together and even I'm trying to write at the moment and I keep putting things in brackets and I'm like I'm stealing from you <laughs> but it's such an amazing idea this kind of thought within a thought within a story well, thank you. I mean, I do, I do love a good bracket. It's true. <laughs> and in the book, a lot of, I'll see if I can find an example, but in the book, all the brackets are, there are a lot of kind of bracketed aside. So here you can see that the, the bracketed aside is right aligned. And that was a decision that we made together, wasn't it? Which was, I think, a very elegant solution <laughs> to a problem I was having. No, it was definitely, it was your idea. But I think what drew me to that was, A, you know, there's, my my family history has a lot of, has several fractures in it. So it is a history which defies lineage and linearity. And so I wanted to kind of, as I say, gather those fractures of stories up into my arms and then put them down in a safe place and in a place that I felt kind of honoured, honoured them. And so part of that was that I started writing the book in prose and then it just didn't have the heft that I wanted it to. So I put line breaks in and then I thought, oh, you know, this is what you wanted to be. And then as I went on, you know, I I wrote a lot of it, uh, not pen in hand or not, you know, at my laptop, but kind of walking around in the built environment. And so a lot of the lines are actually me sounding them out at a certain pace of walking and seeing how they feel and kind of weighing them up in quite um, an embodied way. And I was also, a lot of the books, you know, seeds um, and seedlings come from my time at school, which was a cathedral school. So, you know, we would go to, you spend a lot of time in medieval buildings made of stone and stone has a certain acoustic environment that really preoccupied me. I was very interested in kind of the sounds, the kind of aural relationship between stone and a human body, whether that's human footsteps or human voices or many different human voices singing or muttering or in the whispering gallery or whatever. So, yeah, the other thing was I, I wanted the whole thing to feel that I say it took me a long time. So I wanted the whole thing to feel as if I kind of carved it in stone and then it was just one massive like obelisk. And because I wanted it to, I wanted to impress on other people when they asked me where I was from, this was the information, the only information I had to provide. And it didn't really land in them with them in the ways that I wanted it to. And so I wanted to just make them a massive undeniable thing <laughs> that they couldn't ignore and that commanded the attention I wanted from them which of course they can completely choose to ignore. So I wanted it to feel very much kind of carved in stone with that special kind of prosody that stone inscriptions have. But then there was always all this additional information and that's what's in the brackets. And so even in my attempt to try and make this massive kind of monument, there are all these kind of subversive little interjections and who are kind of sparring with the text or adding more information or counteracting the information, contradicting it and that kind of thing. And I, so I wanted that sense of kind of just like interruption and cross-referencing and, and that happening in perpetuity. Yeah, I love the way. I think I talk about this Elizabeth Bishop thing all the time, but Elizabeth Bishop does this thing where she's like, the map looked like this. No, it didn't. Maybe it looked like this. And she's always having this kind of weird corrective conversation with herself. And I felt like your kind of experimentation with that kind of inline contradiction felt very close to her love for kind of ambivalence or indecision and anti-dogma in poetry. There's nothing about it that instructs a reader to feel a certain way. 
which means you come away from the book feeling like you have your agency still intact and that's another thing I think that I so admire about the work is that the there's so much agency with the reader to kind of uncover their own um, ways through and routes through and journeys through the kind of many different passages and passageways in the book yeah I mean thank you I mean I I my dearest one of my dearest hopes and perhaps one of the hopes I'm most shy about expressing publicly is that I hope that uh, people with similar stories to tell find that this book can provide like a good stopping place whilst they figure out how they want to tell or reflect. I think it, I think it does. I think it do. The way you were talking about it, information, and I guess the information, a lot of it is your, these like family histories. And I was thinking there was something quite neutral about the word information. And I feel like that ambivalence is like there in the book. I wonder to what extent do you feel like those histories uh, are yours? It's interesting because I never I never sat my family members down to say to like get the stories out of them because that was very key to my practice actually when I was writing the book I didn't want to be extractive I didn't want them to I didn't want to take any information that they hadn't given me like willingly and so you know I'm sure they had their moments of shock when they realized that after various dinners when the mood turned pensive and we talked about, you know, so-and-so's involvement in such and such a macro historical event, um, I'm sure they were kind of perhaps a bit taken aback to uh, realize quite how much attention I've been paying. <laughs> I th and I think the only, the only place in the book where I really wanted to know and where I, you know, asked questions was about the death of Franco. And I, so my dad was nine when Franco died and I just wanted to ask him, nine and living in Barcelona, I wanted to ask him about that and his experiences of that and that was four years ago three years ago and he said why do you want to know <laughs> and that was the first time that I gave him some indication of the fact that I was working on a, a project it's a very tricky question for me to answer I do feel as if these stories are my inheritance and I think we all have stories that we pass down in our families which are part of our inheritance even that word inheritance is problematic to me though because the idea of like passing something on rather than just kind of gathering from left and right doesn't quite sit well with me but I had met with an agent and he said you know send me the manuscript when it's ready and so I had sent it to my family members to say can I have your blessing with you know pursuing this work and trying to get it published so I sent it to my parents first and they said yes and that was amazing and you know, I do not underestimate that as a gesture. And then I sent it to my grandmothers and I said to them, you know, I'm not actually interested in knowing whether or not there are any kind of minor factual inaccuracies. I want to know if you feel that I have mishandled your story in um, or your stories in a fundamental way. You know, have I done badly by you? Am I about to do the dirty on my grannies? And so I got a an email from one grandmother, which you know, pointed out some minor factual inaccuracies and said, you know, this happened in Hamburg and not Munich or vice versa and that kind of thing. And then, but, you know, basically go ahead. I do give you my blessing, which was amazing. And it was so profound and so beautiful. And then I had another phone call with my other grandmother where she was much more agitated and she was very meticulous. She went through every single kind of allusion to herself in the manuscript and said, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about this, you know, you've got this wrong and so on and so forth. And so I didn't actually change anything in the manuscript, but I did include right at the beginning of the fourth section. So these two sections, Balae 1 and Balae 2, which Balae is a Filipino word, um, is a term of address for your child's in-law. So, you know, your son's mother-in-law. And I just think it's so beautiful and you know that is the relationship that they bear to one another for for two kind of grandmothers they have spent an awful lot of time together and they're so different but have managed to build a really wonderful relationship over the years but I also think it's very telling that we don't have an equivalent word for that relationship in English and that says a lot about how we structure our extended families 
here, and which I would say is to our detriment. So those sections consist of basically copy and pasted the email from one grandmother and an edited transcript, very likely edited transcript of the phone call with my other grandmother. And I'm pleased with that because, and it was important to me because that basically was a way of handing it back to them and letting them have the last laugh and then throwing up the question all over again at the end of like, whose story is it really? And can we ever say that the stories belong to us if we aren't the person who experienced them in the first place? That's such a great answer. Yeah, and that really reflects what I think the book gives, which is an amazing like intimacy, but also this sense, like you said, of these kind of decentered stories of family and historical moments. Yeah. But what an audience question, which I think is quite interesting actually, is uh, how much has Amnion changed since you first started writing it nine years ago? Nine years. I don't. I don't know whether change is the right question because it has. I always knew when I started it that it was a small project and then it just kind of grabbed out other ideas and incorporated them. So I guess it has changed a lot. It has grown a lot in scope. And um, I think I had quite a magpie-ish imagination in my late teens where I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. And let's have a little bit of this and let's muse on this. And then a lot of that also got shaved away uh, as time went on. But I I think I was quite sort of greedy in the themes I wanted to explore. And then quite late in the day, that was when I really thought about the structure. But I already had the title and the titles for the four parts, I would say, quite early on in the writing process. And I sort of I had this I had the idea for the superstructure that was quite um, firm in my mind. And then I thought, OK, well, now you just need to write the thing to fill it and meet the specifications and then it'll be okay. Because we're coming up to the edge of this time now, we should probably close uh, this evening with your readings. Will, would you like to do a little reading? Um, yeah, okay, I'll read a, a little, a little, yeah, I'll read the shortest poem in Rendon. Like the, one of the affinities I've got with Stephanie's book is that those kind of linguistic, the, the, the homonyms, basically, the, the kind of bits where language just seems to break down in the in, in, and be unable to like communicate exactly what you want it to communicate because it's just not good enough. Um, so this is a poem called Budlia, not Buddha, and it's about the fact that Budlia has no, no etymological link to Buddha. Budlia, not Buddha, chanting in bloom. My soul, before I knowed it, chanting too. I ran down to the tube and from Gray's Inn Road to Farringdon to the Golden Lane Estate, Budlia, not Buddha, chanting in bloom. I went, not caring where I went, how late it was or why, but barred at every turn I took and every church gate chained, Budlia, not Buddha, chanting in bloom. Gray, it grew and far from home until I had to stop. My bundling found me on a bus, and eyes closed, there I cried, waiting for the sky to gape, and let me crawl inside. Budlia, not Buddha, chanting in bloom. Budlia, not Buddha, budling on my tomb. Thank you so much, Will. And that's from the incredible Rendang, which can also be purchased by the LRB shop. And Stephanie, if you'd like to close this amazing evening, so this is from the last section of Amnion, and I'm so excited to read it aloud um, because it gives me all the feels. And I'm so excited to be reading it in such illustrious company. And thank you so much for everyone who has worked on the book. It takes a village. And I'm so grateful to everyone for just taking really good care of me and it just being like the great joy of my life thus far. This is in honor of my parents and the fact that they have just modeled such a beautiful kind of mode of constellational kinship with friends and chosen families. And that has been just the greatest gift. I am writing now from the inky heart of empire, its assonance no more unknown to me. I shall knock the pillars out from under you and label you up in room upon room of Wedgwood blue. 
I have shuffled all the shards of what came to me broken, and I have not pride for dealing in shards is what I wanted, these being my inheritance, these being my demands, my thanks, my by rights. I used to worry that the performance was never quite for my own benefit, that I owed it to others, that without me they, they might never apprehend and therefore I was duty bound to make the point again and again. With the quiet militancy of washing rice before cooking it in a saucepan, this had been the extent of it, cooking rice. But it is possible, as I have found, to delineate blood bearings to each their own. My brother, for instance, is less interested in this quandary. My father, for instance, professes to be half, which would make me a quarter. I reserved his right to do so, but my claim is my own. And when it comes to the men of my family, I do not think it has nothing to do with their command of desire, depending. Who was MRA? One who was given a coat embroidered with love stories, so that when donned, she was clothed in romance. She fled, she wandered, the coat weighed, until she cast it off, and then he was free, her shoulders bare with their elusive curves, all the uses of my body and what others would have me put it to. Blood is so contrived, texts are porous, I am walking from one to the other. I am clothed in romance, I am casting it off. Like this, I am primeval as a woman in a sundress. I have become one of the gritty women, with freckles peppering the loose skin of their arms. I am walking through a many-furrowed field, which in relinquished seasons is feathered with asparagus. In this late light of an early century, the ash shades of earth and stubble, light, give, pledge, you my troth, fealty, loyalty, truth. Palazzo della Signoria, the ceiling with Penelope and other female virtues, on business with my mother. In the evenings, mozzarella that oozed with the pleasure of being eaten. Even then, I had inklings. When I looked at the female virtues on the ceiling, the position I would need to be in to contemplate Esther sitting strong in her faith. And when the stories are shrugged from my shoulders, then I am free. You are the bedrock of all that I am. All the days of my life shall be to honour you in everything I do. Now I walk. A marriage should not be a forsaking of all others. It is instead a many witnessed act. I stand before you today, I imagine myself saying, with the emotional health to choose this person because of all of you. I can face the enormity of this decision because of you. I know what love is because of you, its bluntness, its grittiness. I am here, the bottom bracket of a most loathed generation. All the joys promised to me, all those potencies playing out in other theatres of war, our little civilian lives of hitherto peace, the future endless no more, violence like money stored offshore. Your coming over the threshold was marked, my equivalent days were opposed, it was stark. When we came over the hill with our knuckles all in our mouths, it was something I'd seen, a hit and run future which had come for us like the slice of a knife. And the world we knew was all wrong, too hot and unjust. Nonetheless, your coming was heralded with the triumphs of the civilian over regime. Let us enter into oaths knowingly. So I ask you now in the presence of this company. And of course, volunteered my father to my friend, my best friend, I married in defiance of state. It is the vowing which interests me. I call upon these persons here present. The cause for which marriage was ordained, this not included in the civil script, having been cut in twain at the time of the burnings, to love and to cherish. From this day forward, incumbent on me, all that I am, I give to you. But were they there all at the time of their giving? And how did they know? I am suspicious of this knowledge which apparently simply descends. Then they shall give their troth to each other, the deep bone know. From this day forward, put asunder against all manner of foes. Have you ever been held by all the limbs of a woman?
Callum and I eat a cheese. We walk for hours and look at art. Arthur makes a single Yorkshire pudding, which looks like Anatolia. I am making little waves with my carrot as if it were a cigarette. There are long conversations in bars, in kitchens, in the illegal extensions of council house flats. We get drunk too much. We know nothing about shoes. Oh, sorry, we know nothing about wine. We spend our money on shoes. We press our palms together to dance in the amber-colored oak panels dark. We bowl forth to a city that didn't really want us. Would I live forever in this country? The thought made my throat close in. It's chalky mid-hues, fields like paint sample cards with whimsical names. I will love you all my life. When my mother vowed in the face of those persons then present to commit to my father to the exclusion of all others, that cold day in October with the Assyrian lions and the red buses streaking by, the imminent grapes. My mother was protecting my father from the violence which could come for him in the night or the day, at work or at rest, and take him back to the islands where little love waited for him. My mother was 21, bullish, and knew nothing. It was her boldest act in the time of walls falling all over the world. My father resents this narrative. He says it was love, which it was. But we must not forget the bodies that eyed this union for a full year after. My parents are brave and the choices I make will be made in the vault of this precedent. They made us a world where private witness love could win over nations and all the stories they told. They made me richer for these confusions. My parents made a promise in the face of the state. They stared it down. When asked all the monumental questions, they replied, do, between them and those present. But my parents also did something which was within the most primal framework of the state. I proposed something different, a love so unsanctioned, no promises exist for it. Hitherto, society has been underpinned by the institution of marriage, the covenant, the sacrament. It has been used for the warehousing at its most recent and benign of intelligent women. I call for a reordering of its ceremonies. I call upon these persons here present today. I solemnly swear, I pledge to relinquish the matrimonial retreat which has ordered us unto this brink. As we hurtle towards the coughing future, I promise to hold tight to you. I promise to hold you up and hold you close and hold you down when you may feel you go, when you feel you may go spinning off the earth. All that I am, I share with you. I promise my presence in good times and bad, in suchness and even in the eventuality of wealth. I wish you good fortune in the time that we will travel through together and the changes that we will forgive in ourselves and in others. I promise to stand by your side as we move through changing worlds. I promise to respect you and query you when I am in doubt. Um, I should say actually before we get to the final section that of course whilst this is very much in honour of my family, um, the whole book is about how family can have such a broad and capacious definition so this is very much about my friends as well, um, and for friends everywhere. I made my friend smile, one of his best smiles, the ones that knock the knees out from under the sun. I had made him a birthday banner. He saw it coming up the garden path. I was in the dining room. He smiled up at me. It tackled me sideways, this smile burning into my memory, tackling all my preempts by surprise. My beautiful, beaming friend. I made him smile. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It tackled me sideways, him smiling on the garden path, turning 23, that flush of love. My friends whom I adore, it stuns me how it runs so deep. I am amazed. How, where the warning, this friendship formed to take, it sloshes in the cup. I swore no solemn oaths. And yet in these times when I brim and spill with grief at the time's consequence, I find myself at the foot of this most sacred undertaking to love and defend in the present tense 
with no deferral or commingling, to be my lone line self and look the monumental questions in the eye, to defend you all until my lungs give out. You have made me gentle, you have made me brave. In these, the weeks of our need, we come to one another on the tides of work and day. We are charging at the best befores of our rage, a most minimum thing this age commands. I will defend you all until my lungs give out. I will love you all my life. All these things being said, it is not always necessary to operate only at the register of vow. You may suffice yourself with subtext and all its crowds. And the bitten truth is this, when I am with you, teleology drops away and the days need have no given meaning. For in the quiet of your company, I am of consulate closeness and bristle of it along every pore. And standing by your sides, I feel steadied and prepared to face the yawn of years. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm.